Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast in the world where we dissect all things philosophy, history, pop culture, mythology, you name it, it's on the table. And like most weeks, I am very excited to be here today and to uh, record and share this episode with the world. I got a little bit of sad news. I guess in the history of news that is sad, this rate's low, but It is sad to me, and that was Game of Thrones Season 8 is likely not going to be out until mid-May 2019. Woof, that's a long way away. I was hopeful that, like many of you out there who are fans of the Westerosian, Essiosian epic about who will ultimately lead the Seven Kingdoms, I was hopeful that it would be April 2019. Turns out uh, this article broke on the Huffington Post literally today, um, well, whatever day you listen, it doesn't matter, today for us recording this, that's likely not in May. So I thought there is no better way to honor my favorite show uh, than do another character case study in Game of Thrones slash The Song of Ice and Fire slash HBO smash hit George R.R. Martin's epic novel series, And we picked the character to dissect, to understand, and to discuss with you, our dear and favorite listeners, Cersei of the House Lannister. Yeah. So if you have been listening to the podcast for a little while, you know this is not our first Game of Thrones character study. Um, We've done a few. And if you're interested in catching up on those, I would definitely recommend going back and listening to our episode on Stannis our episode on Daenerys and our episode on Tyrion. I'll post some of those on our social media in the next week just to uh, point you to where they are. Uh, But it's something that we really enjoy doing because obviously the show and the books written by George R.R. Martin have such a huge cast of characters who are all so deeply felt and deeply written and 
beautifully performed by the actors on the HBO show Game of Thrones. Um, and they're characters who are kind of an endless well of information in terms of how they connect to historical figures, how they connect to literary figures, and how they connect to mythology and philosophy. So they're really ripe for discussion here on The Midnight Myth, where that's our chief concern. How do the stories that we tell relate back to the things that make us human? And we felt that exploring Circe was going to be such an interesting exercise here on The Midnight Myth, because yes, she is a villain. She is a character who is evil, to the bone. She is a character who does so many horrible things to the other characters on this show, and yet she is someone who elicits emotion in us that might, on a show that's less well handled, or a book series that's less well handled, uh, fall so far under the radar. So she's somebody that we think is going to be uh, a really rich exercise to pull apart in terms of what she represents. Obviously, this is going to be your spoiler wall. There are going to be a lot of spoilers for uh, for the show Game of Thrones, especially uh, the later seasons. So if you're not caught up, there's no time like the present to go back and check that out. Um, and before we jump in, I would say, if you want to join in the conversation, please hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter at midnight at The Midnight Myth. We're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're on Facebook. You can also visit our website, www.midnightmyth.com. And you can hit us up on uh, your favorite podcast listening app, especially Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating or a review so we can reach more people. So in the intro to this, I will, uh, I will kick us off, if you will, and um, say that, one, I've read all the books Laurel has not read all the books. You've, you're about halfway through the books at this point. I correct. have read the first two, and I'm a, a, a few pages into the book three. Okay, gotcha. Shame, so, shame on me. Yeah, no worries. So this discussion will focus primarily on the TV show because of that. Also, the TV show is further along in, in Cersei's story than the books. However, the books are on the table, However, this is not a cross-comparison Cersei books versus Cersei TV show. It's just all things and everything Cersei. Also, in our other episodes of Game of Thrones characters, we sort of summarized where they're at. Um, Cersei is so deep in the show and in the books because uh, she's one of the few characters who survives it all. It's going to be hard to summarize, so we're not going to do a beat-by-beat -beat summary, but a few just high-level details. Great. Um, so high-level details, the uh, Lannisters are based off of the noble family from a period of history called the War of Roses in England, in which the king died without a successor, and two families went to war for the throne, one of which was called the Lancasters. So the Lannisters are based off of these real historical uh, figures. Um, the Lannisters in Westeros... They literally are sitting on a gold mine, so they are the richest family, one of the most powerful families. They're headed by Tywin Lannister, who is a ruthless, ruthless lord. Uh, Cersei has a twin brother named Jaime, who is her lover, and through their love, she has three children, all of which she claims are the children of Robert Baratheon, the king that she married, but they're not, and those are Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella. Um, we get to the point where... Joffrey becomes king, dies. Marcella is supposed to marry the Prince of Dorne. She is murdered. 
and then Tommen kills himself when his wife and the high and the septa gets blown up, and that is at the climax of season six. Um, Cersei is a character that has endured through all of this. She is one of the, if not the, power players of the Game of Thrones. Um, she orchestrated the death of her husband Robert Baratheon. Um, so that uh, Ned Stark couldn't, you know, usurp her authority and bring to light the fact that Robert's supposed children are not his children. Um, she orchestrated um, the trial of Tyrion for killing Joffrey, knowing that he was innocent. Um, she is sort of behind the scenes, in front of the scenes. She is all thing, everything King's Landing. Every story thread of King's Landing flows through Cersei Lannister. Um, when Tommen gets, gets risen to power after, uh, Joffrey is murdered and he becomes the king and, uh, Cersei is essentially ruling through Tommen cause Tommen is a little young and a little naive. Um, Tommen's, uh, is responsible or pardon me. Cersei is responsible for arming the high septum by giving him the army of the faithful, a decision that comes back against her when they end up imprisoning her and torturing her for supposed incest and, uh, you know, unfaithfulness to her husband. Long story short, Cersei Lannister is a staple. She has endured war, atrocity on every level, the death of all three of her children, and last we left on the show, she is the crowned ruling monarch of the Seven Kingdoms. She has pretty much come through every trial that's thrown her way more powerful than she started. Uh, so she's an interesting person to uh, to explore because adversity that comes her way only seems to make her stronger. Uh, and and for that not to be the hero of the story is a really interesting flip of that structure because instead of us rooting for her to come out uh, with, with more power, we're like, oh God, I hope somebody finally takes down Cersei but instead she just comes back bigger and stronger and more powerful. So thank you for that kind of summary of where she's at with some of the highest beats. That's very helpful for getting into kind of the discussion of what makes Cersei, Cersei. And oh, just other fun things. Cersei is a Lannister. The Lannisters, their house words are, hear me roar. Um, their sigil is a lion. So the sigils in Game of Thrones are essentially the flag of each house. It serves a purpose because when you are on the battlefield, a flag waving identifies uh, whose side you're on and they can use to coordinate complex troops movements, but they're also symbolic that they represent the animal closely aligned to the house um, more symbolically. So the lion as the king of the jungle, the, the king of the jungle, pardon me, the uh, most powerful beast of all the beasts represents that the Lannisters are about power. Their colors are red and gold, red being red like blood, red being red like rage. Vitality. Vitality, yeah. gold being wealth, gold being the color of the sun. So the Lannisters fancy themselves the most powerful house. They uh, are the only house that really, as uh, fans, that we know their house song, which is the Reigns of Cascamere a uh, song that if you've watched the show, you've heard the theme played over and over again, every longing moment where the Lannisters are either about to take power or lose power. The show reminds us of that theme. And um, it's a song that's about 
Tywin brutally crushing a rebellion of one of his lower bannermen. Yeah, and I think we're going to use Reigns of Castamere as our uh, our our aisle song when we get married in October. We're going to walk down the aisle to Reigns of Castamere. Do you think that's a good idea? No, that's a terrible idea. Oh, why? Because the last time that was played at a wedding, everybody fucking died. Everybody died. So let's dive in, right? Let's let's kind of break apart who Cersei is. Uh, in relation to House Lannister, apart from House Lannister, as a ruler of the Seven Kingdoms and as someone who vies for power, who really is she and the meat and bones of who she is? I'm I'm totally into that. So if you listened to our Stannis or Tyrion or Daenerys episodes, you'll know that I have a theory about Game of Thrones and the main characters that which um, have seemed to be impervious to the Martin curse of, you know, early death. And that is that each one of these characters that's lasted deep into this narrative represent a sort of moral or philosophical aspect of ruling and, and how to conduct themselves. So with Cersei, I think she's no different. Cersei represents to me Machiavellianism. So this word has several meanings, and I think Cersei represents all the meanings of it. So Machiavelli was a um, writer in the 16th century and he was Italian, and he wrote a work of art called, or pardon me, a work of philosophy called The Prince, in that he detailed a sort of how-to novel for European princes, e.g. European royalty, how that they should best rule the the territories they governed. Machiavelli um, argued that you should have one face to the public and one face in private. The public life is the life where you are humble, where you are grateful, in which you are symbolically the ruler and the moral uh, champion of the people. Behind the scenes, you need to be ruthless. You need to make sure that your power is always expanding. It's always growing. You need to smile to your enemies, and when they turn their back, stab them so they die. Um, Machiavellianism also has a psychological component in contemporary Machiavellianism. Um, It's part of a theory called the Dark Triad. The Dark Triad summarizes three different characteristics of a personality type, and that is comprised of Machiavellianism, which means someone who seeks their own power at all ends, no matter what. Narcissism, so someone who believes the rules and the normal Um, sort of procedures and standards and morality don't apply to them because they have inherent specialness. And lastly, psychopathy, someone who fundamentally lacks empathy for others and is okay using and hurting others. Cersei is the embodiment of the dark triad in the show. And there's plenty of textual textual evidence for this. Um, Season one, she has no problem orchestrating the death of her husband, Robert Baratheon, to protect her and her children, even though her children, by the laws and rules of Game of Thrones, have no actual claim to the throne, doesn't matter to her. There's something special about her where the normal rules don't apply. She's willing to patiently and methodically promote her own power through and her children's own power and has no problem murdering someone in order to get that done. So in that lens we see her constructed as the perfect villain for Game of Thrones. So what do I mean by that? Game of Thrones is about 
power medieval politics at its core. And Martin and the show are trying to show and expose elements of human nature through these characters. So there are characters that represent the opposite of Circe. We have Daenerys, which I talked about secular humanism, and we have uh, Jon Snow, who represents, uh, I would say, topic for a different um, podcast, but deontological moralism. And stoicism, yeah. And, and stoicism as the sort of form to his strict rule, moral-based system. Yeah. And these are the people that inherently we want to see in power because these are the people that will do the right thing when they get there. Standing in opposition of that is Cersei. Because Cersei possesses the characteristics of the Dark Triad, she will all, she is naturally the one at the end standing in the way of our heroes from seeking and gaining power. There's a reason why, for example, Ramsay Bolton doesn't make it, because Ramsay Bolton, in terms of the Dark Triad, has just psychopathy. And yeah, there's a little Machiavellianism. He killed his father. You know, there's a little narcissism. He's a bastard. He's not supposed to inherit things, but he believes he should. But at the end, what Ramsay Bolton really likes to do is torture and play with people. Right. right? Littlefinger is all Machiavellianism. It's only about power. Yeah. Right? Littlefinger's the other uh, other kind of correspondence to Machiavelli- Machiavellianism with Cersei, which is interesting that you bring up Cersei as the embodiment of it because I'm like, oh, Machiavelli, that's Littlefinger. But I love how you contextualize Cersei as the kind of uh, culmination of these three parts of the Dark Triad where she's making up for some of Littlefinger's uh, lack here and creating a more fully well-rounded version of that philosophy. Yeah. Think of Cersei at the end of season five in which she's been imprisoned by the, the high septum and she's been tortured and starved and beaten and then is brutally made to do this like horrific walk of shame throughout uh, King's Landing. Yeah. And this is very reminiscent in both book and the show Really, they pulled what happens in the book pretty much directly right in the show with a few variances here and there. Um, But it's horrific. It's terrible. And at the end of the walk of shame, you know, lesser people in the respect, lesser people, lesser Machiavellian people might be beaten by this. But Cersei exhibits great patience and care once she is out of the hands of the Septon instead of trying to learn the lessons that they were teaching her brutally, but trying to, instead of trying to learn them, she immediately sets her machinations to destroying them all and carefully and methodically orchestrates a scenario in which by the end of season six, she has obliterated all of house Tyrell, most of house Tyrell. Um, she's obliterated the entire, uh, septum's army, the high septum himself, Marjorie, and she's cleared the way for all of her enemies. This ends up costing Tommen's life. And yet Cersei never really truly mourns this Mm. because she fundamentally lacks empathy as the part of psychopathy. She doesn't feel like the rules apply to her, so she refuses to go to the trial. And then in Machiavellianism, where does it end? Her being crowned the first queen monarch of the Seven Kingdoms. And it's okay. If it cost her her last child, but she ends up queen, it's a worthy bargain. She refuses to have Tommen even have a proper burial. She just has him burned, and she moves on. 
Wow. Yeah, no, that's a, a really, um, really accurate way to portray that kind of sequence that she really steps over the bones of the children that she claims are the only things that she truly cares about in order to cement her own power. Uh, and so it's really interesting to watch that journey as she starts to um, let down the defenses she has built up for herself, which are, hey, the only thing I love is my children, or the only reason I'm doing this is to protect my family. Uh, but really, in the end, when she sits on the Iron Throne, it's about taking her own power. I'm also really glad that you introduced Machiavelli uh, to this conversation, because as obvious as it is for um, kind of Circe's motivations or Circe's um, why she does the things that she does, it has a lot to do with the uh, history that uh, Martin is basing this on. Niccolo Machiavelli was a 16th century writer, and the War of the Roses is late 15th, 16th century. So the same rulers who were involved in this decades-long, generations-long conflict were reading this guy and were thinking, this is how I cement my power. But I'm also interested in where it intersects with the literature and the mythology of the time and how we think about ambitious women. If I may, before we, we transition Please. into that, Absolutely. I just I want to read the bullet points by which define the dark triad. Yeah, please. And we will, I think when I read them, it's a, it's a fairly long list, but I think when I read them, we will find Cersei in every one. Oh, wow. Only focused on their ambition and interest. Check. Prioritize money and power over relationships. Check. E.g., she's comfortable breaking up with her one true love, Jamie, in order for power. Come across as charming and confident. Absolutely, Cersei. Exploit and manipulate others to get ahead. Totally. Lie and deceive when required. Use flattery often. Lacking in principles and values. Can come across as aloof or hard to re get to really know. Does Cersei actually even have friends? Nope. Cynical of goodness and morality. Check. She is the one who came up with the, uh, the, the phrase, when playing the Game of Thrones, win or you die. Mm. Very cynical of goodness or morality. Power is not about doing good and doing right by others. You play and you win or you die. Capable of causing others harm to achieve their means. Low levels of empathy. Often avoid commitment and emotional chat attachments. Jamie is her one exception. Can be very patient due to calculating nature. Yeah. 100% Cersei, rarely reveal their true intentions, mm -hmm. prone to casual sex encounters. As soon as Jamie goes, she starts boiking her other cousin, uh, <laughs> her, her cousin, Lan, uh, Lannister. Lancel, yeah. Lancer. Wow, I fucked that up. But anyway, can be good at reading social, social situations and others. For example, when Daenerys shows up with two dragons in season seven, she instantly knows one must be dead. Lack of warmth in social interactions, 100%. Not always aware of the consequences of their actions. She blows up the septum, not really knowing yeah. what, if that's going to piss the people off and not really caring. And also not realizing that she is killing the wife of her son and that he truly loves her and that this might cause him to jump out a window. Yep. Might struggle to identify their own emotions. Wow. Yeah. So... Yes, very, very connected to this character. Um, and it's interesting to kind of read that list and go through other characters that we've talked about, not just on Game of Thrones, but uh, 
on HBO with Tony Soprano. So a very interesting list there with the dark triad in contemporary psychology. I am so glad you brought that up because yeah. Cersei and Tony both suffer <laughs> psychologically yeah. from the dark triad. Yeah. The hardest aspect um, in researching this podcast for therapists to confront those that exhibit these symptoms of the dark triad is that these people often don't believe they're sick. Mm. They often think these, these traits are good that these are qualities that should be admired and often society rewards them. Yeah. Yeah. That's true because Cersei exhibiting these characteristics in particular are what help her reach the final position that she's in, which is ultimate power over the seven kingdoms shaky as it is. She is rewarded by it regardless of what the other characters that we identify with might think of that in season one. There's a great scene, and if I remember correctly, it's just in the show, not in the books, where Jamie and Tywin are talking, and Tywin is butchering a deer. And he looks at Jamie and he says, I need you to become the man you were meant to be. Not tomorrow, not later, today. And in that, Tywin espouses his philosophy that the only thing that matters is power, power for the family. We will strive for power for the family or we will be nothing. There is no in-between. A lesson Jamie never learned. Mm. The real child that Tywin should have been instructing and the real child who was learning from Tywin's ruthless pursuit of power at all costs was Cersei. Absolutely. And that's where I'm kind of interested in how this philosophy, this psychology intersects with her womanhood because we imagine that Tywin Lannister might be trying to imprint this, uh, this philosophy on his male heir, uh, whether that's Tyrion or Jaime. He imprints this on his girl child. He imprints this on Cersei more than any of them. Uh, she is more than anyone, a product of the environment that she grows up in because she takes this, uh, this feeling of intense, intense loyalty to a point where it almost can't be called loyalty anymore uh, into a place of uh, desiring greater and greater power and glory for herself and those who share her name and share her values. So how does this intersect with the sort of incongruous factor that she is not a man. Uh, and we've talked about the women on Game of Thrones before, especially with regard to Daenerys and kind of how she intersects with uh, her kind of mythological counterparts or her historical counterparts. But I think Cersei is almost more interesting in terms of how uh, she is informed by the women who came before her. And one of the most obvious literary uh, so correlations that we have for Cersei is Lady Macbeth from, uh, from Macbeth by Shakespeare, uh, which is another thing we've talked about on the podcast before with Game of Thrones and without, uh, because she is the ultimate ambitious woman. She is a woman who seeks power, and that seeking of power is what makes her a villain in that story. It's how she becomes the character who spurs Macbeth, the title character, to do the horrible things that he does. 
because she gets the seed planted in her head that she could be queen, she causes her husband to murder the king in his own house, to murder so many other people, to rape women, to murder children, uh, just to gain power and consolidate that power. So we see a model for Circe in that. And we see a model for Circe all over mythology with uh, monstrous women. And I'm also going to introduce something uh, that I have talked about before, but haven't really had a name for. And I recently just did some digging to kind of figure out why this feels so potent for me. And I stumbled upon the writings of a woman named Barbara Creed, who is a contemporary film studies professor who wrote a book called The Monstrous Feminine. And she's someone who uh, particularly critiques the horror genre, uh, but Game of Thrones is, of course, kind of high fantasy meets horror. So there are a lot of places where these two um, philosophies kind of come together. And Creed's monstrous feminine posits that in horror and in literature and art and storytelling, when the woman is not exclusively playing the role of victim, she often takes the role of monster, not just as the female version of the male monster, but in a form where the femininity, the feminine itself, is inherently monstrous. There's a lot of Freud that she is starting to reverse here, uh, but she essentially puts out that, quote, women are constructed as biological freaks whose bodies represent a fearful and threatening form of sexuality, end quote. So she lays out Whoa. a few, yeah, she lays out a few archetypes here uh, that you especially see in horror, but you can start to realize in Circe and in her mythological antecedents where we have the witch or we have the femme castratress or the castrating mother. And there are a few other archetypes that she lays out, but those especially... I think, come to bear in Circe because she is defined by her motherhood, the fact that she has children that she claims are the thing that she cares the most about, but she's also defined by her sexuality, and she is defined by the fact that she takes things that are traditionally male in this universe uh, she takes power in a way that is traditionally masculine and therefore takes that power away from the male as a sort of symbolic castrator. So while we're looking for where Circe really intersects with the monstrous feminine, I don't think we have to look much further than her name. I think we have to look in her antecedent in Greek mythology, the goddess Circe, uh, so if you're not familiar with her, this is Circe of Homer's Odyssey. She's a goddess or enchantress sometimes, who is usually laid out as the daughter of Helios, who's the son, and an oceanid nymph named Percy. She's best known for using magic to turn her enemies, especially men, who offend her into docile beasts, sometimes swine, sometimes lions, but they surround her castle and are her servants. So she symbolically emasculates them, symbolically castrates them by taking away their power. But she's also a literal castrator in that Odysseus, who goes to save his men, is warned by the god Hermes not to go to bed with her unless she promises not to steal his manhood. 
He literally says, don't sleep with her. She'll take your penis. And this is a repressed psychological fear that I think is associated with our Cersei in Westeros, in Game of Thrones, where the men of this universe are afraid that she will take away their power. So where am I going with that? To Cersei's walk of shame, or her walk of atonement, as it's put in this show. I would love to break that down if you will permit me. Oh, yeah. One, one thing that just popped into my head while you were doing that before we get to the walk of shame. There is a great scene in the show. I don't remember if there's a book counterpart to it. Uh, internet, you'll have to fact check me and get back to me on it where uh, I forget what season it is because it just popped in where Joffrey is now king mm -hmm. and he brings a minstrel into court and the minstrel, he instructs the minstrel, minstrel to play the song. And the song is about King Robert's death. And the line is, Cersei, the lion, chopped his balls off. Oh, wow. And the boar did all the rest, is the conclusion of the song. Mm, I forgot that, about that. Meaning that Cersei, by her feminine wiles and charms, emasculated Robert, turned him into a fat lech, and that led him directly to his death. Cersei was the destruction of the great warrior Robert King, Robert and Robert as king and king as warrior. And uh, Joffrey is offended by this and has the man's tongue cut out, but it solidifies it in the mythology of this world that people looked at, as Cersei, at Cersei as the, 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 the catalyst to, Ro to King Robert's death. Even though no one directly knows that she did in fact murder her, her husband, um, they always say they, they are singing songs that she chopped his balls off. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so glad you brought that up because I forgot that that moment happened. And that is so powerful, right? That there is a public opinion that Cersei in her femininity is monstrous and that she takes away the power of men. And that that's fucked up and that hurts me. Um, but I want to start kind of but digging it, in. Yeah. It proves your point. It, it absolutely does. Um, yeah. And I think gives us a really interesting viewpoint into Cersei where we, I don't think we can just look at her and say uh, she's a psychopath. I think there's a lot that we have to look at in the perceptions around her and what shapes her into the person that she is starting from the moment that she admits to Ned Stark in season one that she was in love with Robert, and then he climbed on top of her and whispered Liana's name, that this is a woman who has constantly been punished uh, for feeling that the way that she does. And then later, when, uh, when the High Sparrow takes power, is punished for simply having a vagina. Um, so I, I think it's a very, very interesting place to start, especially with the public opinion of Cersei. Let's let let let's do it. I'm glad that you brought that up. And just to, for the record, saying that she represents Machiavellianism and then psychologically the Dark Triad is not to say that um, you know there isn't an aspect or side to analyze Cersei that is more sympathetic. I don't, Absolutely. Yeah. I don't mean that just to tear down the antagonist. Agreed. Like, Agreed. I think any great antagonist has a a dash of sympathy in them to which if we are seeing the world through their eyes, we can understand their choices. And though Cersei's choices are monstrous and horrible, 
I think we can understand them and why she makes them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, awesome. So let's jump into the Walk of Atonement, shall we? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. I mean, that is the culmination of season six. Um, that is in, if I remember, I think that's book four. It's the climax of book four where that happens, mm-hmm. or it may be book five. Again, internet, I'm going to rely on you. It's been a while since I've read the books, but I'm pretty certain it's the fourth book where she does the Walk of Shame. So we are at a point where King's Landing has been essentially held hostage by the High Sparrow and his order, who Cersei is directly responsible for. Um, through their evangelical faith, they have uh, they have torn away the sort of veneer that hides the excesses of King's Landing and started to hold people accountable for anything that is considered unseemly, or sexually explicit or sexually deviant, especially. Um, it's important to note that the weaponization of the faith came at Cersei, who thought she was manipulating the faith to right. tear down Marjorie. Right. So to her, it was a Machiavellian play to make sure that she destroys Marjorie while her hands are clean, where it wasn't her, it was the faith, and it turns disastrously against her as they also, not only did they imprison Marjorie, but they also imprison her. Exactly. And so Cersei is held captive and tortured to admit to her, her own sexual acts. Those are the things she is being tortured and punished for, are for having a, a, an adulterous relationship uh, and having an incestuous relationship. It might be worth backing up a little and kind of discussing in terms of the mythos and in terms of the cultos of the show where the faith of the seven comes from. Yeah, please. So in the history of Westeros, there were the first men. They were the first men to come to the land of Westeros. They crossed a uh, like a natural land bridge between Essos and Westeros. They had weapons of bronze and they confronted the children of the forest and had a long, long, long war And they sort of uh, forged the first early kingdoms of Westeros, in particular in the north. They're the ones um, that, through the war with the Children of the Forest, they confronted the first White Walkers in the show, the others in the book. Um, Then um, the, the sort of land bridge between Westeros and Essos is destroyed by the Children of the Forest. There's a shaky truce, and then in come the Andals. They are another sort of... um, cultural force, and they had the religion of the seven. In the history of Game of Thrones, they carved the seven star into their forehead, and they had weapons of iron, Mm -hmm. and they came in, and they sort of conquered all of Westeros aside from pretty much the north. The north stayed with the first men. The rest were run by the Andals, and they formed all the seven kingdoms as we know it, and the religion of the seven We also know from our friends in the North, they're also called the New Gods. So the religion of the seven poses that there are seven main deities. Or seven aspects of one singular deity. Well, the original idea is that there is a polytheistic seven, you know, different deities. As time progressed, the thinking of the theology evolved to the notion that 
there's really one deity with seven different manifestations. Mm -hmm. So to some, they worship them as different gods. To others who are a little more um, nuanced and learned in the religion of the seven, say that they are seven different manifestations of one deity. Right. Those seven deities are the mother, the maiden, the crone, the stranger, the warrior, the smith, and finally, the father. They are worshipped in places called septs, and uh, the high septum um, is the ruler or the like pope, if you will. Now, the religion is directly integrated into the monarchy. And it is the priests, the high priest of the uh, the religion of the seven who crowns the king, very much in the way it was the pope who crowned the holy Roman emperor, very much in the way when Napoleon made himself the emperor of France. It was the pope who handed him, didn't crown him, but handed him the crown. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a point in the show where there is no high priest um, and Cersei needs to select the next one as... Essentially, Tommen needs to find it, but it's really Cersei. And she finds this offshoot, sort of more fanatical aspect of the Seven, and she meets the man who is nicknamed the High Sparrow. And he is known for not wearing shoes. He is known for feeding the poor and doing acts of charity and piety. Cersei is a little impressed by him, but she also underestimates and thinks that she can manipulate him. Yeah. That if she gives him power, she'll be able to control him. And she does in spades. Makes that and legitimizes that fanatical wing. And she doesn't realize that they take a literal interpretation of all of the rules with no no room for uh, interpretation, no room for symbolism, no room for, well, you know, the queen can do what the queen wants. Every single one of the the rules written in the religion must be followed to a T. In this way, Martin is very much playing upon in the medieval fanatics fanaticism that rose in particular out of the the bubonic plague. Oh yeah, yeah. And that there were just really strict, really fanatical Catholics that came out, and anything that's a sin must be killed and destroyed. There's also the notion in medieval history that the era of Christendom, the land was the literal body and blood of Christ. They Mm. called it the Corpus Christi. And we see this in the religion of the seven and the fanatics. They believe that the crown and the faith are the pillars of society and any attack on even that land is also attack on the faith. So from that fanaticism, Circe ends up being imprisoned and tortured because the accusations are out there that she's an adulteress and that she's committed incest. Those are her two crimes, sleeping around on her husband and sleeping with her brother. And because any sexual act other than procreation is a sin Mm -hmm. in the seven, as it was in medieval Catholic religion, she is now a sinner and must atone. Right, and it's worth looking at the three feminine deities or the three feminine aspects of the seven who are the maiden, mother, and crone. And these are are images that we see in neo-paganism and in some interpretations of uh, ancient mythology as the three aspects of woman. But when applied outside of mythos or applied outside of religion as literal are an extremely reductive way to view 
uh, the spectrum of womanhood, the spectrum of femininity. So by reducing women to these pillars, these paragons, you must be the virginal maiden, or you must be the virtuous mother, or you must be the wizened wise crone. Any real woman stands up as an affront to that, just as any real man would stand as an affront to the warrior or the father. Well, it's important to note, too, to, to add to your argument, there are four aspects of maleness. Right. In the smith, the warrior, the father, and the stranger, mm-hmm. and only three of womanness. Of course. So there's already a patriarchal power dynamic in the manifestations, three dedicated to women and four dedicated to men. Right, but holding that these are the aspects of what women can be, there is no wiggle room for a woman to enjoy sexual pleasure or for a woman to have a private life that excludes motherhood or excludes maidenhood. So Circe stands as this ultimate affront to what it means to be a woman or this incongruous picture of what femininity should be as the men of the faith would like to perceive it. And that's why she is punished, because she enjoys having sex, because she has sex for reasons other than bearing children, because she takes pleasure in her feminine body, and because she has ambition to power that is traditionally male. So, Oh, go ahead. Oh, go on, go on. But it's just like Mar- Martin to complicate it, because in everything that you said is absolutely true. However, her sexual pleasure is incestuous, right? You know, like yeah. So he adds this other layer of of you know just moral revulsion, yeah, on top of it to make it complex. Because complex, because yes, incest is genetically not a good idea. No, is morally pretty reprehensible. You know, and uh, Freud would argue is a like latent subconscious impulse that none of us really act on. And right. what does Martin do? He brings that to the surface in Circe and complicates it that, yes, she's punished for just liking sex and pleasure. However, she is also having the most repugnant form of sex and pleasure that there could be. Right. Um, which is just the genius of Martin. Absolutely. So let's talk about the Walk of Atonement. Oh, yeah, that's where we started. Yeah, Yeah. kind of exactly what happens in this particular scene, which is season five, correct? Season five, um, it's in the finale. So this begins with Cersei begging for a drop of the mother's mercy at the hands of the High Sparrow. She pleads to one aspect of the Septane deity in asking to be looked upon with mercy by the mother. And then what happens? She's stripped naked. Her body is ritually cleaned and scrubbed, roughly. Her long, golden hair is cut off, which removes a piece of her identity, something that's associated with her femininity, something associated with her sexuality and her house, her status. And then she is paraded through the streets of King's Landing. The High Sparrow says, A sinner comes before you, Circe of House Lannister, mother of Tommen, widow of Robert, so she is categorized not as Cersei a woman, but Cersei who, was, who is mother, Cersei who is wife. She is categorized in terms of her relationship to men. And men of power. Men of power. She has committed falsehood and fornication. Her crimes are having sex and lying about it. And here she will cast aside all pride, all artifice, and present herself as the gods made her, shorn of secrets, naked before the eyes of gods and men, to make her walk of atonement. And she's paraded through the city, as we know, with the septa behind her ringing a bell and shouting, shame, 
She's spit upon. People fling spit and shit and Veg- garbage at rotten her. vegetables. And she's cursed at in exclusively gendered terms like cunt and whore and bitch. And she holds in her tears and her pain until she's out of sight. With her feet bleeding, she keeps everything bottled inside because the only thing worse than being flung shit at and screamed shame at and your feet bleeding is having anybody see that it actually gets to you, that it actually makes you upset. And it's a horribly disturbing sequence. And I, I have to be perfectly honest, the first time I saw that sequence, I stopped watching the show. Um, and I, I gave up on the show for a couple years because it was a little too painful to watch and because the emotions that it elicited in me were so complex, I had a hard time kind of looking at them. Um, and I hope you'll you'll indulge this kind of emotional um, outpouring here. Indulge. For Cersei. But um, yeah, the first time I watched it, because Cersei was a villain and a character that I did not like and did not align with, I, I felt that the intent of the scene was to make me feel good that she was feeling bad. That the intent of the scene was for me to want to fling shit at Cersei and scream at her and uh, cheer for those who were doing so because she finally got her just desserts. And while I can't speak to the intent of the artist, that's how I felt um, in terms of Mm. what it was presenting toward me. Um, That it was hoping to elicit not sympathy for the character, but a feeling of justice, even though a woman was being punished horribly and uh, disproportionately for something that is not a crime. And I guess as us, the audience, we know that she had done crimes. Right. But that's not what she's being punished for. Right. She isn't actually being punished for any of her actual crimes. Right. We're supposed to be like, well, Cersei deserved it. And there's something else going on here with um, the relationship to what I was talking about before with Barbara Creed's monstrous feminine. And it it pulls upon something that Creed is influenced by, which is another feminist philosopher um, named Yulia Kristeva called Abjection, which when talking about horror films especially, generally relates to horror derived from bodily fluids. Because uh, the, the word abjection literally means casting off of something. And so there is a literal um, kind of abject happening here with Cersei bleeding from her feet and the, the fluids that are, are thrown upon her, but also a symbolic abjection of her being cast out from the society that she has built. Um, and it, I, I feel like it brings, me, it brings me to so many of Cersei's own, um, own lines that define who she is. When she first meets Sansa and asks have you bled yet, as one of the first things she ever says to her, because she defines herself by those feminine milestones of menstruation, of childbirth, of the letting of fluids, kind of defining who the woman is, her body defining what it is. And now here, her body is on parade, and the fluids are being flung at her while she bleeds. Hmm. Sorry to get a little... No, a little I, gross there. Yeah, but. no. I mean, I I think you you you're hitting the nail on the head. You know, one thing that I think the show and the books have been accused of by its critics 
is a lack of delicacy and tact pertaining to um, feminism. Yeah. And the agency that women are, are taken, that's taken away from women, the amount of rape that happens in the show, um, and the amount of men using women as playthings, and sometimes the way it's edited or shot to take the emphasis away from a woman feeling pain or yeah. displeasure or discomfort and focusing it instead on a man. I'm thinking of when Ramsey tortures and rapes Sansa and Theon has to watch. Yeah. And we're made to see it from Theon's perspective rather than from Sansa's. Um, Cersei in the show is raped by Jaime yeah. um, at the altar of their dead son, Joffrey. Um, that doesn't happen in the books, but there's certainly the, the spirit comes from Martin. And I think Martin is many things and he has created some very feminine, positive characters thinking of Sansa, Brienne and Daenerys. But on the other hand, he's very comfortable with violence and torture and hatred on women. So I'm, I'm very conflicted in the respect that I want to see Cersei fail. Right. But the walk of shame, watching that, reading it is really hard. And I agree with you that I don't want to root for it. Right. You know, like I know that Cersei created the conditions that made the walk of shame possible, but there's a part of me who believes passionately in fundamental human rights that no matter your crime, no human should endure a walk of shame regardless. You know, and Cersei is human, hence that my, my outlook, it, it covers Cersei. She, no one should have to endure that. Right. The one thing that, you know, I would say to the credit of the character, Cersei, she gets bloody vengeance for it. She really does. And because there are aspects of Cersei that we can identify with and knowing that, you know what? The Sparrow deserves to get blown up. Maybe Marjorie doesn't. Maybe all the other innocent people don't. And that complexity, when she finally gets her fiery, bloody death upon her enemies, that complicates even that. I would, I would say that at the end of the day, the walk of shame is a low moment, mostly if we take the show for the the citizens of King's Landing. Yeah. We see, and I think this is my reading on it now, um, and this may not be correct, this may, and this is subject to debate, and I welcome the, the discussion, but re-watching that scene in preparation for this podcast, the one thing that I really got was what a horrible rabble people can be. And the people and what they put Cersei through and what they do simply just to do it, you know, simply just because they wanted to see a highborn tear down low mm -hmm. is the real takeaway there that there is a vicious aspect to religious fervorism, religious fundamentalism that exploits and hurts and, and can be turned and weaponized even though Cersei is a villain and sucks, she 
fucking terrible and should not be in power. And I want her to lose. That doesn't mean she deserves to be paraded through the street like that because she doesn't. She may deserve death in the show. She certainly deserves defeat, but she doesn't deserve that. And it is, I think, a, a critique the way that I look at it now in the way that religion can be weaponized in public rhetoric to bring out the worst. And this is not a universal statement of all religion, you know, because I'm not trying to condemn everyone who's religious, not at all. There are plenty of people of faith who are fantastic and amazing people who would stand against something like that. However, the show is directly saying it is because of this religious fundamentalism that this walk of shame is happening. And let's examine the conditions in our own society that create this fundamentalism because it is a cancer. It doesn't deserve to, to die a fiery death, but we do need to confront it. Yeah. So I also have a retrospect reading that I think is similar on the walk of shame, which is that looking at it through the lens of this monstrous feminine and this, uh, this identity that Cersei embodies, she's embracing it here. We're embracing it. And in doing so, in having this culmination of putting on display that which is monstrous in the feminine, which is through a patriarchal lens, sexuality and um, indulgence and pleasure of the flesh, by putting that on display, it exposes something about us. It exposes something about the audience, about the viewer, about the, the little people of King's Landing, which is that we enjoy watching women being punished. And that is that is terrible to look at, but we have to look at it. Uh, and in watching the Walk of Atonement, enjoying watching Cersei be punished and abjected, we are cast as the villain. And I'm not saying I felt this way, but I'm saying those who enjoy it are the villain. And Cersei emerges out of that stronger. Cersei emerges out of that with the motivation to come back and to exact a poetic kind of justice from her perspective on her tormentors. And I root for her blowing up the sept. You know, it's a, it's a subconscious wow. thing where I sit and I say, yeah, girl, blow them up, take them out. Um, wow. Because of that exposure of a really nasty part of humanity and of human nature that we have to look at in order to correct, just like you're saying, we have to look at it in order to say we have this issue and we need to fix it. I appreciate your vulnerability and admitting that one of the worst acts of terrorism in the show is something that you rooted for. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I applaud you for your openness there. You know, I would say in response to that, if it is wrong to, 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 to treat Cersei to, to the walk of shame, it is also wrong for Cersei to brutally murder those that put her through it. Of course it is. And I think that is why Cersei is an antagonist in the show because she, if she does come out stronger, yes, but not better. Right. She comes out worse. Right. Um, you know, I think it's telling that who Cersei selects as a hand is essentially a witch in male form in Quiborn a disgraced maester who practices dark magic. She, yeah. she promotes an evil wizard, you know, to, to her side. This is someone that hasn't learned. So 
in the worst and darkest and most terrible circumstances that anyone can go through and endure and survive, there's always a kernel of truth or something that one can gleam and learn and grow from. What makes Cersei a villain is that she doesn't do that. Yeah. You know, um, which is juxtaposed to the other people in the show who do great works of violence too, because Jon Snow is a killer. Right? And Daenerys is a killer. Daenerys is a killer. However, Daenerys learns and grows and does her best to do better. However, sometimes she is a just a murderer who burns people alive unjustly. Or crucifies them, yeah. You know, sometimes she does horrible, terrible things, but because she's willing to learn and is trying to get better, she is a hero. Cersei, at every moment, doubles down on the awful. And... Yeah, she doesn't deserve the walk of shame. She didn't deserve to be sold to Robert Baratheon. She didn't deserve to get struck by Robert Baratheon in season one. You know, none of those things did she deserve. However, none of those things made her better. They all emphasized the dark triad. Yeah. They all fueled the worst parts of her personality. And because of that, despite the level of sympathy and understanding that I have... In particular, in the, the the Walk of Shame, she still stands as one of the greatest villains ever created. Absolutely. And, you know, when I say that it's important for us to look at our reactions, uh, of course I don't, I'm not happy that, you know, hundreds of people got blown up in the sept. Of course of I course. don't want people to die. Um but it, I'm I'm interested in us examining those baser instincts that come with uh, with experiencing storytelling. I'm interested in us uh, trying to grasp our um, our knee jerk reactions and examine those uh, and pull them apart and try to understand them because they make up who we are almost more than our calculated decisions do. Um, I I totally get that. So. If I may be, you are open and honest. Yeah. The first time I experienced the walk of shame thematically in this saga was through the book. Yeah. And in reading it, I was able to control how I saw it because it was happening only in my mind. Mm -hmm. And in that, I was like, bitch got what she deserved. It, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And through watching it, and then in particular discussing it with my better half, my co-host and lovely bride, was I able to expose that sore within me? Yeah. That aspect of like, hey, women can deserve punishment sometimes and be like, whoa, whoa, what? Yeah, because you're a feminist. You don't believe that women should be punished for having sexual desire and action. Fuck no. But every single one of us has, and you know, sometimes I'm going to sound like Freud, has repressed uh, emotions or reactions or has things that we would rather not look at deeper and darker in our psychology. Yep. And I think looking at those things is important for helping us become better people. And there's no resource better than our stories and the stories that we invest in, the characters that we invest in uh, to do that work on ourselves. And that's a huge part of what we're about here at the Midnight Myth. Absolutely. And through this exploration into Cersei's character, I come out Better, maybe not stronger, maybe weaker, but better because it forces me to look at that and be like that impulse 
that I had. Now, watching it in the show, I'm like, whoa, these are like real people that yeah. are going through this, even yeah. though it's fake. But like watching the show was like, this is really disgusting. But when it was purely up to my imagination, my imagination was just like, oh, yeah, this is, yep, you created this. You did this to yourself. Right. You deserve it. Right. And it's like, what? What? Like, no, no one deserves that, yeah. no matter what. Let's stop and no unpack one. that. <laughs> yeah. There's not a single person in the world who deserves to be tortured. Yeah. Period. End of story. No matter what they did, they shouldn't be tortured and humiliated. Like, we're not in medieval freaking Europe where that's acceptable and okay. We have learned a thing or two, and there are things that we should completely eradicate. And one of them is that. And so it forces me to confront that sort of unconscious and uh, darker part of my personality and look at it and look at it very critically and very realistically and ask my question, hey, that part of me that enjoyed that, that is an ingrained aspect of my privilege as a white, straight male in America that I need to represent and fucking check and be like, that's not okay. I can't think that I can't even, even imagining it is wrong. Right. And and, and not imagining the, the scene, but imagining it and thinking it's yeah. good. Yeah. It no, is I got wrong. you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I appreciate that perspective a lot. This ended up in a different place than it started, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, game of Thrones is the, the story of our time. And it is the story of our time for a variety of reasons. One, because it's finally okay to be nerdy and like high fantasy. Two, it transcends the lower levels of the genre and elevates it to art. And the only other person that I know of that was able to do that was Tolkien, who kicked it all off. Right. And it forces us to re-examine their own aspects and things and wrongs that we see in our world that were laid down like an acorn planted in our history that have now grown to trees for today. One of them that we can learn from Cersei is the patriarchy mm-hmm. that at every level in turn pushes her deeper into the dark triad. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we can say that the patriarchal world of Westeros pushes her deeper into the dark triad. Uh, and the other is confronting the aspects that we say about that dark triad that are considered defining successful characteristics in modern society, there's another person that has exhibited publicly symptoms of the dark triad that gets praised. And that's our president, number 40, number, uh, what's he? 45. 45, number 45. Yeah. Donald J. Trump shows narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy uh, on a daily, every day. He turns on TV. You see him exhibiting something like that. But the interesting lesson with Cersei is with Cersei, it's condemned with Trump. It's praised. And that's the fucking problem. Yeah. What's the difference? And until next time, be kind. You win or you die.
Meow, 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 meow,